Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back, everyone, to Across the Romaverse. It's Sean and Steve back with you for episode 47. Uh, last time around, we got, we wrapped up Roma season. Uh, and this year, uh, a bit unexpectedly because of the circumstances last year, has turned into an international summer with the Euros being uh, you know held up due to the pandemic last year and suspended. The same thing with the Copa America and some other tournaments. Uh, Euro 2020 is kind of Euro 2021 now. So Sean and I are here to preview the tournament, uh, talk about some of the Roma aspects and Italy and then just the tournament in general. So Sean, how are you doing today? We're a couple days later than we usually record, but uh, you know, no Roma. So we've had some free time on our hands. Well, there was some Roma. I mean, yeah. unless you missed the, the corporate Italian win over the weekend. <laughs> I did. I was, uh, it was Memorial Day weekend here in the States. And uh, I actually had some friends over for the first time in a long time. And it happened to coincide with the, the match. So yeah. I did miss the match, but I was happy to see that Roma lifted a trophy uh, not yeah. the men's side, but a, a trophy nonetheless for the, the club. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you mentioned you, you'd be celebrating Memorial Day. I'm sure a lot of people were, so I totally understand. But not just one, two trophies. Uh, the Roma, Roma Primavera woman won the league again for the yes. second consecutive year. So, you know, the women are really coming through this year. But, um, yeah, we're here We're here to talk about the Euros, or the, the Euro. The Euro is what, what I heard it called on the, on the ESPN commercial run-ins leading up to, to the summer when I was watching the Europa League games on ESPN in America. Well, I wasn't watching it in America, but on American TV. And uh, it just came across to me as like a really super serious promo. And I was wondering, Steve, like how how invested are you in the Euros? Because I'm, I'm here to let everyone know, you know, whether you're based in America or in Europe, uh, I don't want to come off as too much of a snob, but Honestly, we, we've never been too keen on the Euros on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I always get excited for international football, especially tournaments that involve Italy. Uh, you know, Italy was my first team that I followed before even Roma. You know, Italy got me into Calcio in the first place, the national side that, you know, back in like 2002, that was the first team I really remember watching over in uh, Japan and Korea. And we know how that tournament ended. Uh, and Toti yeah. was heavily involved in that, um, you know, right or wrong the decision as it was from the referee that day but that's what got me into soccer really or football as you guys called on on your side of the pond and 
Uh, I always get excited for Italy. I, 2018, I never would have ever imagined Italy not qualifying for a World Cup in my lifetime, and, and it happened. So it's been a while since I've gotten to see Italy in an international competition, uh, you know, a, a proper tournament, so to speak, a World Cup or a Euros, you know, uh, because we know that the, um, what do they call it, the Conference League isn't really a, necessarily a, a big-time <laughs> tournament. It's been nice to see Italy compete with some of those teams because it has given them big teams to play against beating teams like the Dutch recently in that um, tournament, you know, is nice to see, but this is finally uh, the first time in now five years, I'll get to see Italy in a big tournament. Um, yeah. And I'm a bit excited because I do like the players coming through the Italian ranks right now. Some of them in from our, you know, favorite club Roma uh, and elsewhere. I think there's a lot of good young talent. It's a, it's a shame that Zaniolo misses out because of the injury, but you know, he missed the whole season. So it's, it was expected at this point. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm a bit excited, more excited than you, definitely from from our introduction yeah. here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you are, because otherwise this, this episode would be just come across <laughs> as, as really cynical, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's important that people are teed up for this tournament, but uh, unfortunately that's not me. And and if you're out there and, and you're getting uh, problems, getting like motivated for international football, you're not alone. For years now, I just haven't been uh, really motivated to watch it that much. Um, it's not the same feeling as when I had when I was a kid. You know, I, I got hyped for about I got hyped for Euro '96 because I was living in England when I was being hosted here. And Euro 2000, like Steve said, you know, it's slightly different from World Cup 2002, but still Totti really showed up in that tournament all the way to mm-hmm. the end and was man of the match in the final. Um, and then Euro 2004 was was okay because you know a new a new country finally won it, but people weren't happy about that because at least of all UEFA. Because uh, as it turns out, you know, when the small teams win, small nations win the, the big tournaments, people start switching off TVs and yeah. we're not happy about that. Now, on that topic, Steve, would it surprise you to know that in the last two weeks, the New York Times have come out with a report where they feel that it's pretty much 95% obvious that FIFA, of all people, were giving their blessing to the Super League until the very last moment. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't read the report. I know you had mentioned it. And it, it I guess it's not that surprising when you think of it, because when you think about it, uh, UEFA club competition, the Champions League it, more specifically, has really become the biggest tournament uh, in terms of football. I feel like uh, club soccer has kind of taken over the spotlight from international competition. And, you know, what better way to lessen the pull of UEFA and the Champions League than to cripple it, basically, by taking away its best clubs um, and getting them out of there. And then, you know, okay, yeah, people will tune, tune into the Super League, but maybe it makes international competition for FIFA that much more attractive when um, all these players are involved again that might not be involved in this Super League. So it, it doesn't surprise me. It, it's, it's definitely uh, some shady doing on Infantino's part and FIFA's part, if that's the case. Um, yeah. But I guess we, not we, that surprising. We have- we had our editor, Brent, asking the weeks after when the Super League fell apart, you know, what, what were these clubs thinking in terms of like announcing this in such a violent way that they're just splitting from football and, and how did it fall apart in pretty much over 48 hours after announcing. And the New York Times reckoned that what changed was FIFA gave their blessing all the way up to the last moment. And then suddenly they, they came out with, uh, Infantino came out in public with uh, after the Super League announcement with a, an announcement that FIFA absolutely condemn any kind of uh, closed league system. And that was, you know, the, so the, the public noises that FIFA were making uh, were very, very different from what they were saying in private in terms of assuring, assuring those 12 clubs 
that they would have the biggest name in football backing them behind them. Um, so that was really what changed it for nine out of those 12 clubs. As soon as Infantino came out with that press statement, um, and he was very clear, he was careful not to say we're against the Super League. He said we're against a closed league system. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, but the clubs took that as well. Okay, if the FIFA aren't going to come out, you know, from the shadows and say that they're behind us, then we've got to pull out of this. And apparently you know, that's what the New York Times reckons has changed. But what you just said fed straight into my segue. You know, this all has to do with Euro 2020 or, or 2021, what, whether they're calling it right now. Um, you know, the, the, the problem I have with international football is exactly as you said, it's really become just a power play where you have um, three, three different powers. You have the clubs who are increasingly, increasingly looking to take over the Champions League and take away UEFA's baby. And then you have uh, UEFA who are trying to remind clubs who's in power by you know, imposing the Nations League on the international mm -hmm. level. Uh, trying to take over the summer, you know, reinforcing their position on the summer schedule, trying to take over the winter schedule as well. Um, and then you have FIFA who have, have like rehashed this plan that they've been coming up for like over 20 years now, which is, hey, we're going to have to walk up every two years now, you know? Mm. So there's this like three, three bodies in the football just vying for power. And, you know, clubs have always been upset about these summer tournaments, but uh, the more money money piles in because you they're, they're saying, hey, you know, we're, we're the ones who bring the spectacle to the game you know these players are ours and we pay them and then we've released them to, the, to their countries and you don't pay us anything and if they get injured you don't even pass insurance so there's just like uh you know i feel there's like a wave of negativity from the players and coaches themselves when they turn up for for international duty sometimes where they've been put under the pressure with their clubs but to say like hey you know what if you if you don't go 100 this summer that's okay with us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just like, for me, there's there's so much cynicism towards international football inside the game that I find it hard as a fan to, to overlook that from the outside. But but you're here to be the, the beacon of light for me and be optimistic. Yeah, maybe I still hold the, the romantic view of international football a little bit more. I, I, I kind of look past that. But you're right, when, it, when you really drill down into it, um, you know, the clubs have to hate international competition. Look at Zaniolo. I mean, at, on a Roma podcast yeah. here. Z Zaniolo playing in that, um, what was it the Nations, Nations League. League? Yeah, I called it yeah. the Conference League before I'm getting ahead of myself to next seasons for Roma, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But the Nations League, you know, like if Zaniolo doesn't have to play that somewhat meaningless game in September before Roma even kicks off their season, maybe he they don't lose him for the whole season. You know, it was one of those freak yeah. injuries where you step the wrong way and your knee goes. So, yeah, I mean, clubs have to hate these competitions. Um, you know, I think the players still get up for it a bit because you're representing your nation. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of pride in the shirt. You still see the Italy players. I always use Italy because, um, I mean, Buffon was the biggest, uh, you know, spectacle during the national anthem. He would just be belting yeah. it out. And so do many other Italian players and players from other teams. So there's definitely still pride there. You know, the fans get into it, I think, because there's always bragging rights involved, especially in some of these European matches when you get like, France and Germany are in the same group this year. I mean, those are big time rivalries. So it's still fun to watch, but you're right. You know, it's, it's hard not to be cynical sometimes with some of these aspects you're pointing out. On, on, a, on a positive note, do you, do you know, um, there's been like a, a decade's worth of surveys on this where they'll, uh, it's a company called Ipsos that will survey the Serie A fans every year. And constantly, do you know who the two most recognized Italian football icons are in Italian football history? Um, Paolo Rossi, is he, is he one of the two for his 82 exploits? Nope. No, 
You got to think, um, think way more modern. You just, you just put up one of them. Buffon. Yeah, 16% of the vote. And, and who was in second place? If we're going with the 2016, I'd imagine Cannavaro. No. No? You have Bad. to get this right. You got one more guess. You have Bad. to get this right on the Roma podcast. Totti. Yeah. Okay. I, I, was, I almost said Baggio, but since you said a Roma podcast, I kind of gave it away. Yeah. So Buffon and Totti are the most recognized Italian icons in, in Italian football history in the eyes of Italian football fans right now for, for year on year. So yeah, yeah it says a lot about the modern success with your country. You're right about that. Yeah. So let's get into the tournament a little bit. We'll start with a little bit of background. Um, we'll just go through the groups and a little bit of the format and, and some of the history, and then we'll get into this year's tournament. So um, it Euro 2020, I'm stumbling over here as I'm thinking about whether to say 2020 <laughs> or 2021, is in the same format as the 2016 tournament, which was expanded to fit 24 teams rather than the traditional 16 um, you know, I always thought the Euros was a bit harder to win than the World Cup in some ways because there's so many European powers that were bunched into those small groups. Now there's six groups of four, so you get a little more spread of the wealth, at least in the group stage. Um, so this year we have, of the 24 teams, Group A is comprised of Italy, Switzerland, Turkey, and Wales. Uh, group B, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, and Russia. Group C, Austria, Netherlands, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. Group D, Croatia, the Czech Republic, England, and Scotland. Uh, group E, Poland, Spain, Slovakia, and Sweden. And Group F is France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. Um, so First time I've ever heard of North Macedonia. Yeah, they, they added the North to the name a couple years ago. Um, I remember they always used to go by Macedonia. Uh, right. They're one of the teams qualifying for the first time ever uh, because they used to be part of the former Yugoslavia back in the day. So since 94, yeah. when they were an independent footballing nation, this is their first major tournament. Our old friend Goran Pandev is still uh, leading the line there for them. God bless him at 35 okay. years old. Um, and they have, uh, I imagine Savicevic is still their president, AC Milan legend. Um, I don't know if Mikhail Vucinic is involved in behind the scenes at all, but there have been some great Macedonian players in Serie A over the years. Uh, Vucinic was Montenegro, I remember. Oh, sorry, yeah. My yeah, bad. okay. Yeah. I, know, but, I, know, um, I definitely know Savicevic is uh, uh, Macedonian, yeah. Um, El Elmas from Napoli is the other name you might recognize. As a, I was doing the group stage preview today, okay. I was working on it. Elmas is also a Macedonian. Um, and the other team that's making their first ever appearance is Finland, I saw um, when I was going through the, the history of some of these clubs, or not clubs, but yeah. nations. So Finland and North Macedonia. And that's the benefit of the expanded tournaments. Teams like that do get into a tournament with 24. They don't get in with 16, so. Yeah. You know, I owe everyone an apology. Uh, Savicevic is Montenegrin as well. You're no. right. I, I just completely messed it up. I hope there's no mass, uh, Montenegrin listeners because they would not be happy with you, Sean. <laughs> Giving away some of their icons. <laughs> um, but, I mean, to me, Group F jumps out as, as the, you know, the group of death, so to speak, with France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. I know you want to talk about traditional rivalries in the group stage or if they were, you know, they were kept apart. I, I, I noticed a couple... Uh, traditional rivals off the bat, France and Germany, for sure. Um, those countries have a long history on the pitch and off it um, uh, through the 20th century. I mean, and even prior, I see England and Scotland kind of jumps out at me, not really a football and power Scotland, but in terms of bragging rights kind of rivalry that jumps out to me a bit as well. Um, yeah. And even group B with Belgium, Denmark, Finland, and Russia, you have a lot of uh, Northern European, Scandinavian kind of uh, 
ties there with Russia, Finland, and and Denmark. So that could be interesting as well. Um, I, I think looking at this, they, they were mostly kept apart, and yeah, uh, I I think that's what makes you wait for happy because there was a there was a, a giant hoopla after Euro uh, Euro two thousand four mm-hmm. where Greece won it, and um, and they said, look, this group stage isn't good enough anymore because like like you said, European football is where the biggest talents are, so the, big, yeah. the strongest nations are. You know, it's harder than the World Cup. And, uh, you know, people were arguing that you can't have a Euro tournament anymore where, like, you have the mega powers taking each other out in the group stage. Yeah. So that's why they've, they've expanded to, you know, uh, however many teams it is now so that you can have that cannon for them in the group stage and then save the, the big TV ratings for the knockout phase. And, uh, you know, it's not, you know, I'm not necessarily against that because, you know, we do want to see the, the top matchups, you know, right at the end of the tournament. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll also be rooting for a few upsets, maybe. Yeah. Macedonia, and, let's go all the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I agree with the, the, the aspect. They, they definitely stretched the tournament to 24 teams to get more teams involved and keep those big clubs apart. And even the group of death, so to speak, France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal, some of the third-place teams still do advance. So Portugal or one of those teams could finish third and still advance, um, okay. which keeps those big clubs involved because you have the the – 12 you know winners and second place finishers and you still need four more teams to fill it around to 16 so four of the six third place teams still advance so you have to have a really miserable um tournament as a third place team not to advance um so that even you know in the past if it was a 16 team tournament you finish third in a group you're done so if if you had a stacked group like group f this year uh, a couple tournaments ago one of those teams is definitely out in the group stage and it really adds even more excitement to the group stage and a little more onus on those teams in the group stage where now, okay, we're going to the, you know, third group match and a draw is good enough to get through. Then we just get worried about getting a draw. We don't necessarily need to beat Germany or France. I don't know who Portugal finishes with, um, but you know, you, you avoid that. Um, And this tournament is one that is spread across the continent, which makes things a little more tricky with the pandemic. We've, we've uh, you know, come through in the last year and are still fighting in many ways, but just um, for some reference, Amsterdam, Baku, Bucharest, Budapest, Co- Copenhagen, Glasgow, London, Munich, Rome, St. Petersburg, and Seville will all host matches in this tournament. The opener is in Rome. I, uh, I when cannot Italy believe opens. they're making people travel to Baku. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it, <laughs> not it not crazy. that I'm against it on principle, but just in this pandemic, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, and, and the fact that they're hosting, I think I named eight or ten cities just now, um in the pandemic environment it, it's definitely a risk to send teams to so many different places um yeah. across borders you know in a normal year it might be a little bit more of an attractive proposal to get other cities involved um and different countries involved but yeah definitely in the pandemic it is interesting um i just hope that one of the, the major tournament sponsors are johnson and johnson or whoever comes out with the vaccine you know, so. <laughs> um the tournament opens next friday the 11th in rome with italy hosting turkey so italy gets to be the uh they they get the host status in terms of opening the tournament most times the host team of a tournament you know starts it this time we have about 10 different hosts so italy is just the lucky pick because they're in group a this time around um the group, the knockout stage starts on the 26th of June and the final is in London on uh, exactly one month after the opener on July 11th. So those are some dates to keep in mind. Uh, like I said, this is a, you know, 24 team tournament, top two in each of the six groups advances with the four best third place finishers also advancing to fill out the round of 16. Um, Portugal is the defending champion from back in 2016 when they were actually a third place team out of their group. 
um, had a pretty miserable group stage, three draws, but it was enough to get through with three points because of the setup. Um, Portugal, a, Portugal always have a miserable yeah. campaign. They're, like, they're always such a defensive team. Yeah, I, I don't. I've never really understood it. Like even way back in the nineties, like, they, they always had like these big attacking names, like just individuals, like Luis Figo, mm-hmm. um, now obviously Cristiano Ronaldo. But still, such a defensive negative nation in international football. Like they just scrape through on one nils. Uh, you yeah. know, not that anyone's complaining when you win the whole thing, but it's just I feel like they have more potential to change their whole playing style. Yeah. And just to further your point, in the round of 16, Portugal beat Croatia 1-0 in extra time, beat Poland on penalties after a 1-1 draw through 120 minutes. Uh, and then they beat Wales, who was one of the surprise outfits last time around 2-0 in the semifinals, and then beat France in extra time 1-0. I think it was a, a 108th-minute goal uh, that got them over the line. So they're the defending champs. They, they did get the reward of being stuck in a group with Germany and France this time around for their troubles of you know, um, being the defending champs. Um, that was their first Euro win. Other winners in the past, Germany and Spain, each have won the tournament three times. Uh, France has won twice. And then there's a, a whole bunch of teams that have won once. Italy in, included uh, the former Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Greece, and the Netherlands are other teams, other nations that have won one time. So uh, pretty big spread of teams, but Germany, Spain, France have been the, the dominant powers in this tournament. Interesting from an Italy perspective, as you know, we follow Roma in the Serie A, is Italy has had much more success in the World Cup than they have in the Euros. Um, yeah. A little, little interesting they have the, caveat they have there. Three, the three stars on the Azzurro jersey, it's, it's only ever World Cups that there's a celebrate. Um, yeah, the they're, four they're, World Cups. Oh, sorry, four stars, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it's funny because, like we've mentioned before, Italy always going to have major success on the international scene when there's a crisis at home, mm-hmm. um, when it's like a betting scandal or yeah. something like that. So um, apparently that hasn't happened in a Euro year yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Italy's only win was like back in like 1968. It was a long time ago. Um, but they have had some close, they've had some finals in, in somewhat recent history. Like you mentioned the 2000 final. They also made the final in 2008, I believe it was or 12 when they lost to Spain, they got handled. Yeah, it was uh, when Prandelli yeah. was the coach. Um, that, that, that 60s win, um, I don't know how I know this, but that was very controversial because that was like just a couple of years after Artemio Franchi, the, the actual guy, not the stadium. Uh, he was ahead of um, FIGC at the time and he, he decided to, to ban foreign players from playing Italy as sort mm. of like a protectionism policy of Italian football. And it, it worked at first because they won the Euros, like you said, but then they, there was just disaster at the World Cup campaign afterwards. And um, it was just like so, so mixed results from that that people spent the whole 70s like wondering, you know, why why are we banning foreign players from playing it? Yeah. Shouldn't we just have them back? And they finally turned in, in the early 80s so they, they let signings back in, which which led to Roma, Roma beating AC Milan to the, to the punch and signing Falcao, which mm. proved to be a very big deal at the time. Yeah. And, and even in, on the international stage, we've seen... Uh, the Oriundi through the years playing for the national team, you know, yeah. those, those former, um, you know, people with Italian ancestry, like Jorginho, like we see uh, Rafael Toloi, who made the team um, yeah, much to my chagrin to after he beat Mancini for the last <laughs> defender spot on the team. But yeah, Italy's always had that history. So that, that is an interesting uh, little tidbit you threw in there um, considering that they won in 68. Um, just some historical stats and this one's not so historical, but Cristiano Ronaldo enters this tournament level with Michel Platini with nine goals, uh, tied for the most ever in his 21 appearances. So that he is almost certain to break that. I'd imagine, um, 
And he is second in assists with six behind only Carl Proboski of the former Czechoslovakia um, in assists. Yeah. He was, a, he was a great player this time. Short lives, um, but he was very good. Yeah. He played for Lazio at one point, but he was a flop. But before that, he played <laughs> for Manchester United, and he was very, very good. Yeah. So Ronaldo with the chance to make some history this tournament, uh, as he makes history, you know, often uh, in the stat books. Uh, Germany is the country with the most ever appearances, 10. They're the only country to appear at double-digit tournaments. Uh, when I was doing some research, they've played 53 matches and won 28 times. Those are all um, most ever totals. Um, Italy, interestingly, I think they've been in eight tournaments, and they have the most ever draws with 18. Draws. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me, knowing the way Italy has played historically, because they were a club that, when they're in good shape, is not afraid to take a draw on the group stage and sometimes even yeah. start slowly and take a draw on their opening match. Um, yeah, I, I retract my previous criticism of Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the team with the most ever defeats, which I guess speaks to them qualifying enough to get this many defeats, but it's Denmark with 16. Um, so they've got the most defeats ever. So you got to qualify for a fair number of tournaments but, to lose 16 times. But they, they are former winners of the Euros, aren't they? The Euro 92? Uh, yes, they are. They are one of the yeah. former winners. So yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit, Sean, about Roma's involvement, and then we'll get into a little bit of an Italy preview since we are a Serie A podcast. So um, the players that made Euro rosters that are currently with Roma, we have uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini, uh, Leonardo Spinazzola, Brian Cristante, and the, the returning from loan Alessandro Florenzi with Italy. Uh, Cengiz Under also returning from loan is with Turkey. And did uh, Robin Olsen make Sweden's right, roster? Yep. I believe Robin he did. Olsen so yeah. Robin Olsen also... Um, some players, six players, yeah, technically six when you take in those three returning loan players, three guys who are actually active on, <clears throat> excuse me, the Giallo Rossi this year. And, um, the players who got cut off the provisional sides were Gianluca Mancini and Rick Karsdorp from Italy and the Netherlands respectively. Um, so Sean, the players that didn't make the cut, are you surprised by Mancini or Karsdorp not making either Italy or Holland's roster? I'm uh, very disappointed that Karstorp didn't make it, but I, I I won't pretend like I know the politics behind the whole Dutch uh, squad makeup. I, I read briefly on a, on a Dutch site, uh, not that I read Dutch, but it was in English, um, that they like they had to choose between a defensive fullback, um, an attacking fullback, and they had they have they had two of each, and then they had Hatterbor. Um, who was like kind of like the all rounder, but was coming back from injury. And I don't, I don't think half the board made it in the end either. I don't think um, he did. No. Yeah. So yeah, there was some brutal decisions made there, and I was, I was gutted for Rick, but apparently they just like they attacked down the left and they want to defend down the right, mm. and they, they feel like Rick uh, hasn't done that for long enough. You know, he's, he's been doing okay for Roma this year. Um, I'm disappointed for him, and of course I'm disappointed for Gianluca Mancini, but yeah, hey. Um, this just goes into what I've been saying about Mancini for a while. Um, you know, he, he's my favorite Roma player, don't get me wrong. You know, we're both fans of him, and he is my favorite current Roma player. But the funny thing is, whenever someone becomes my favorite player, I usually, I usually keep a very critical eye on them. And uh, Mancini is a great footballer, but really not such a good defender. Um, and I just don't, I don't know if you can really rely on him to be that last man defense in, in tournament football. Um, I'm not saying that's the only reason why he got dropped, not at all, not by a long shot, but um, it just doesn't really surprise. It doesn't leave me outraged like some people have felt on social media. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think the fact that he was left off for Toloy, I think, uh, is what drew the ire of, of many people on uh, social media. I even saw, you know, fans of other sides like Inter and others as shocked that Toloy made it um, on this roster. I know he was only, uh, you know, got his Italian passport, I think, a few months ago, I think in time for yeah. the most recent friendlies. Uh, so yeah. he's only played a handful of times for Italy. I know I've seen Mancini employ him as a, a makeshift right back at times which mm-hmm. could have given him a little bit of an edge over Mancini, uh, a little more versatility maybe along the back line. Um, you know, but he's not a standout player. I think that's what kind of got people. It wasn't like Mancini lost out to a prime year's Nesta or Maldini or something. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that if you only get your, you know, in a team a few months ago, you haven't, yeah. you haven't earned it. You haven't yeah. been part of the qualifying campaign. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was the big thing. I was disappointed for Mancini. I, I know, um, you know, we both rate him highly. I think he does have some holes in his game that need work. Um, but the benefit, I guess, of not making the arrows, which we were talking about before we came on, is that he gets a little bit more time with Jose Mourinho to work on those defensive aspects of his game because that is one of Mourinho's yeah. strengths. Um, yeah. So I guess in the end, it, it might work out better for Mancini and Karsdorp in the long run. But I'm sure yeah. both those guys are gutted not to make it, um, you know, to the tournament with their their nations who they've been uh, involved with especially Mancini who's been involved in the whole qualifying campaign for the most part and you know and both of them yeah. are kind of entering their prime years um, moving to the players who did make the tournament what do you expect from them maybe who do you expect the most from the least from you know we have Pellegrini, Spinazzola, Cristante, Florenzi, Under, and Olsen depends where they play I expect like if Pellegrini you know this might be my just my not case theory but I think if he plays on the left wing which he has played with Lee under Mancini he could have a very good tournament He's he's really good at, at creating danger in the final third just with his runs alone. So I think I expect probably the most from him. Um, Cristante, it, I I think it, that depends on like how tired people get and how mm-hmm. you know whether injuries playing to the to the team because like he's that utility man like uh, you know names like um, Alberigo Ivani and uh, I don't know just names throughout the years that like aren't necessarily glamour names but they they turn out to be really important in tournaments because mm-hmm. like. They, they came in at the 11th hour and did the job. Um, that's really it. Uh, Spinozola, Florenzi. Well, Florenzi, I expect to actually, I do expect a big tournament from him because he spent a lot of the season out with like from chicken pox to, um, to, from, uh, to COVID 19, uh, the two COVID 19 infections. So he's, he's actually had a lot of rest. And I expect that he could have a very good tournament. Um, uh, Spinozola is a, a little bit iffy because. I never really know if he's going to stay fit or not. So he's the only doubt I have. Um, Under's the real surprise because he's played three games all season. Yeah. He can't be in shape whatsoever. And he's got to be rock bottom morale-wise. So I don't have any expectations of him whatsoever. And I don't, I don't think Olsen's going to be a starter in Sweden. So, I, I, again, zero expectations of him. For me, it's Pellegrini and, and Florenzi and Cristante are the guys that I think uh, could do the most damage. What about you? Yeah, um, I... I... So I think Florenzi and Spinazzola both have a chance to get the most playing time of the Italian contingent just because of the positions they play. Uh, mm. I think Spinazzola comes down to his fitness. He is recovering from an injury, but his only competition at left back is Emerson Palmieri, former Roma mm. player who did not play a lot at Chelsea himself. Um, yeah. So we don't know what kind of form he's in. Um, Florenzi on the right side is really competing with uh, probably Di Lorenzo of Napoli for the most part because who's played uh, a ton who's played a ton he's played I yeah. saw your notes he played the 36 matches and started all of them all 90 minute yeah. starts I think um yeah. so he could be fatigued at times um and I Mancini has has used Florenti quite a bit at right back um 
you know, he, it's funny cause he doesn't normally cut it at Roma, but maybe in the national team, there's others to cover his flaws, but you know, he gets pretty consistent playing time there uh, and mm-hmm. could have an impact. And he's, you know, definitely gonna be hungry to, to show what he's, he's worth over there because whether it's in Rome or elsewhere, he's gonna be looking for a job next year. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, to me, I agree. I think Pellegrini could have the biggest impact if he gets the time. The issue with him is the Italy midfield is so deep, especially if Marco Verratti is fit enough to play because there are some injury concerns. He got hurt about three weeks ago, and it was about a month-long injury, so we'll see if he's ready for the start of the tournament. Um, but, you know, he's competing with Nicolo Barella, Jorginho, Locatelli in the midfield. Um, you know, Cristante gets pushed to fifth or sixth choice in that midfield because there's so much depth in the Italy midfield. But I think you're right. Pellegrini is versatile enough because he can play on that left wing, which he's done well for Italy before. Um, mm-hmm. One of his best matches he played for Italy that I can remember in the like qualifying rounds or maybe it was even the Nations League recently uh, was on the left wing. So I think that could be a good place for him. It, you know, he'll be you know, probably coming in off the bench if he does that for Federico Chiesa, or maybe he gets a start like in one of the later group stage matches. But I think he could have an impact. Under, like you said, I don't know too much about the Turkey setup. Um, so I don't know how much he plays. I saw he started and played 90 minutes recently in a friendly, but it was against a smaller, smaller country. Um, and, you know, Olsen will see if he starts or not. But, you know, he's kind of a forgotten man for Roma anyway. But we'll take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk about Italy specifically. We'll talk a little bit about that side. Uh, and then we'll just give our, uh, you know, some predictions for the tournament. So we'll be back in a few minutes. All right. Welcome back. So we talked about the Roma players, Sean, let's get into the Italian national team as a whole. Now, uh, Italy is in group a, like we mentioned, they play Turkey in the opening match on the 11th, followed by Switzerland on the 16th and Wales on the 20th, all three of those matches in Rome. So Italy will have a home field advantage, so to speak. Uh, there will be some fans in the stands. I don't remember the exact number the Italian FA had to guarantee, but I think it was somewhere around, I don't know if it was 20% or 10,000 or something like that, that they had to guarantee for those matches. So there will be some, some fans in the stands. That should be a boost to the players in general who haven't played in front of fans in quite some time, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, Just as long as they, they don't play any rugby matches before the, before the yeah. day before. Yeah. yeah I should, I should hope the, the pitch is in the, the most pristine shape it could possibly be in uh, at the Olympico because it is a major tournament. Um, yeah. So you brought up an interesting point about freshness um, in the tournament and talk about what you think that will have an effect on the tournament as a whole. Yeah. I mean, you know, cynic that I am, I, I did take this, this episode seriously because I did a lot of research into who's played the most uh, in the big five leagues domestically uh, around Europe in this season. And that's why I feel uh, it could play into the team selections that we've seen from Roberto Mancini um, when you have the Italy set up where I, I don't, you, you correct me if I'm wrong in any of this because I haven't watched the games and you have, but I just from what I remember from Mancini teams is that he he likes to defend the middle and he competes um, attacking wise on the on the flanks. So he's going to mm-hmm. want fresh legs on the flanks that can like really beat their men and put in those balls. Um, and I, I did like research on who started the most and who hasn't. Um, and to be honest, what I found doesn't really you know, swing the Italy team selection either which way, because everyone has more or less played. I mean, they have what? They have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They had ten, ten players in the squad, uh, nine now, because Manchini's been cut, that have played over 30 games this season and, and over 30 90-minute performances as well. So not just like off the bench, but actual four games. Um, and then uh, they actually, if you bring that to tw- over 20 uh, performances this season 
they have 15 players in the squad, uh, sorry, from their talent pool, uh, 14 or maybe 13 in total after some names got cut. Um, so that in itself doesn't really swing at you away because, like, for example, you know, Mancini could say, well, why was I left out for Francesco Acciardi, who played, you know, 31 games, 32 uh, 90-minute appearances, you know, just one less than me. Um, you know, it doesn't really justify the team selection. But here's what I think coaches will be worried about. We saw this back in World Cup 2002, back when the Champions League was a two-group two stage tournament and it led to like 54 games in the season in total for like the top players. And then we saw at the summer tournament, there was burnout from the French team who were reigning champions at the time and they crashed out after losing to Senegal. Uh, they crashed out the group stage. They, they couldn't even score a goal at the World Cup 2002. And people said, we will never let this domestic fixed calendar like impact summer tournament ever again. Um, now we're back to risking that happening again because of the congested schedule we've had this year. And you know, these other teams in, in Italy's group could really undercut Italy because, I mean, okay, quality-wise, Switzerland, Turkey, Wales can't really compete with Italy. Um, you know, Italy have like their, their whole squad is full of players from the big five leagues, um, where Switzerland as a nation overall have just 44 players in the big five leagues, let alone the people, the players they've called up to their actual summer squad. So their talent pool is significantly smaller, but they, they've got to be considered the biggest rivals in this group for, for yeah. Italy. Um, Turkey have just 24 players in the big five leagues in their, in their entire talent pool to call up. So they'll be third favorites. And Wales have just 18 players in the big five leagues. You know, this isn't even just counting the, the, the players that have been called up. It's talent pool in total. You know, they, they really only have, um, in terms of actual regular, play, regular playing uh, uh, players in the big five leagues, they have just Ethan Ampadu, who, who spent this last season at Sheffield United, uh, but he belongs to Chelsea. And then you have like names like Gareth Bale, Tyler Roberts, uh, Aaron Ramsey, Paul Dummett, I know as a Newcastle fan, I know him well, uh, Ben Davies at Spurs. You know, these guys have only played like, uh, they've been in and out of their size. They've played like maximum 15 games this season. But what that means is that, all these other three nations in Italy's group have the undercut on Italy because they have fresh legs. Mm. I mean, unless they have like Jenkins Ungaro, who's barely played at all, so he's not fresh. He's he's just out of shape. But um, for example, like Switzerland, they'll call on Granit Xhaka, who you mm -hmm. know Roma been linked with this summer. He's played twenty eight games. That's not bad. Uh, they have uh, okay, Furler, Atlanta played thirty. Um, they they have like Brunner, but they have they have a comfortable like average of about 20 to 25 games in the whole squad whereas Italy are pushing above uh well over 30 games to play this season so that's why I feel like you've got to give Roberto Mancini the benefit of doubt because if you're really going into a summer, tour summer tournament where you're defending the middle of the pitch and you know that most of the games are going to be competed on the, on the flanks in terms of scoring goals you've got to make sure that you, you know you've got fresh legs out there to, to really win those duels and that's where I feel like we just talked about it you know, names like Florenzi will come into play, uh, Spinazzola if he's fit, or M even Emerson Palmieri, who mm -hmm. you know didn't have the the you know, full chocolate block season, but had enough games at Chelsea to to stay at least relatively fresh. Um, and then uh, the wide men as well. We'll see who who Italy choose to start on the wings. But I mean, you tell me because you you watch Italy way more than I do. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a starting eleven, the wide men I'd imagine have to be off the bat are probably Lorenzo Insigne and mm -hmm. um, Federico Chiesa uh, seem mm -hmm. to be the, the favorite too. Um, you know, I think, you know, D Domenico Chiesa, Berardi. Chiesa's only played 
90 minute performances from 28 starts this season. So he's relatively fresh. Yeah. He's not, he's not worn out. And he's, yeah. he's probably on the wings, Italy's most uh, explosive player. He does. One thing I've noticed with him sometimes he does get, you know, head down, you know, straight ahead sometimes, um, which we mm-hmm. talk about with certain players. Um, but, you know, he does have the talent, um, you know, Insigne's played quite a bit. I, I would imagine for Napoli this year, he had a, yeah, yeah. one heck of a season for Napoli probably his yeah. best one as a Napoli player. And now he's in his prime years at 29. This is probably his tournament to shine if there ever was one. Um, mm. You know, I think those two start. I think Chiro Immobile starts in between them. Um, but that's one of Italy's big issues is where do the goals come from? Because for as great as Immobile has been with Lazio and Belotti has been with Torino, the goals don't really come for them in big matches for Italy. Um, it, we've seen the striker position is, is always a question. Um, one of the surprise absences, in my opinion, was Moise Keane getting left off um, mm. and Giacomo Raspadori getting called up for, you know, the Sassuolo youngster um, yeah. as the third striker. Um, I saw some people mention form has a lot to do with that. I think Raspadori scored five goals down the stretch. Keane was kind of quiet for PSG down the stretch after he had a really good start to the season. So that mm. could be it. Maybe Mancini just feels he's a better fit for the style they want to play. Um, but yeah. to me, that was that was the biggest surprise exclusion from this squad was Kane, just because of how much the other strikers have struggled. Um, you know, Italy, though, like you said, has a lot of talent. But to me, Switzerland is a more tournament tested team. They, they're in almost every major tournament. When you look, you know, they don't strike you as a footballing nation, but they're often in the, those big tournaments. Um, Italy yeah. hasn't competed in a big tournament in five years. Many of these players yeah, have yeah. never played in a big tournament uh, of, of the Euro 2016 side there was very few of these players on the on the roster uh you know bonucci he, chiellini those guys but it's a it's a fairly he, young roster in international terms and i'm even looking at turkey who probably third favorites in this group um you know they have they have scoring threats there they have uh mm-hmm. who's had an excellent season uh, he's only played 22 games uh 23 starts but he's he's been a uh, you know he's he's pushing well he's he's getting pushed for a major move to a big club because of his this season's been that good. Um they have Soyundru uh, at the back, they have Mulder, uh, Sassuolo defender at the back, Ozan Kabak who Rumble were linked with for throughout the years who they took the bigger move to Liverpool this year. Uh, Demoral's back from injury. Celic Angelic, sorry, uh, again like a, a guy who uh has been linked with Roma in recent in the last few years and has played very well for for Lille. Chalinoglu's there. Uh, Yazujo, uh, again, uh, like a more like a substitute guy at Lille, um, who's Yilmaz's mate, uh, and then Enes Unal, who is at Getafe. So, you know, they they have a they have a solid spine that they have attacking mm-hmm. threat, and they have a, a very very strong back four defense if they're playing a back four. Even if they're playing a back five, they'll still be strong. So, you know, that that's why I feel Mancini has has to play his cards right because if you lose the opener against Turkey in a shock. And then suddenly you're up against it against I don't know if the second group game is Switzerland or Wales. You, you said before, but I can't remember. Um, you know, but th- those are two teams that can get the jump on you. you know, Wales, I, I don't really count them as uh, a, a nation with a, a chance here because they, they just have they have players out of shape and they don't mm-hmm. really have too many names. But you know, Turkey and Switzerland could really cause you problems. So yeah. I, I feel that's why he's gone with Bonucci Kelin at the back, who, who've been in and out the U of A team this season. And yeah, they get a lot of flack on social media. Okay, you're, you're calling up the the Juve names who are past it, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you've got to stay fresh to, to keep out that those Turkey and Switzerland teams. So like, like you said, the Switzerland team have lately more big tournament experience than Italy do. Yeah. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds, they do. And, um, 
like you mentioned, Turkey is a tough, tough, tough egg to crack the first match. You know, they have some mm-hmm. solid defenders. Uh, they have a great creative player in, in Jalanoglu. He had, when I really, I was looking up some of the key players uh, for the piece I'm working on previewing the group stage, um, his like progressive passing and those kind of numbers were really solid in Europe's big five leagues in the last uh, calendar year. So uh, he's mm. a threat, you know, and if he's playing some, some solid balls or he's getting an opportunity to free kick, he's a danger man as well. Um, so Turkey will be tough to start. And then Switzerland, you don't get Wales till the last match. That could be a blessing yeah. in disguise. If you get off to a little bit of a slower start and need to win the last match. Mm. Um, you don't or, want that game to be a dead rubber. Yeah, you, know? you don't want it to also be you if you slip up really badly the first two matches, then maybe it yeah. means nothing, like you said. Um, exactly. I do expect Italy to win the group um, based on talent and how they've been playing. They won all 10 of their qualifiers. Um, they've only lost twice under Mancini since he took over back in, uh, I think it was May of 2018, June of 2018, right before the World Cup when Italy lost to France in a friendly when France was gearing up for the World Cup and Italy was kind of just feeling feeling out players um and then they lost again that september to portugal in the nation's league one nothing other than that italy is unbeaten under mancini um so he's got to playing his football you know you you have to play who's on the pitch they've beaten the dutch they've drawn the dutch they've uh drawn portugal i think they they beat and draw drew poland the first time around in the nation's league so they're beating some some decent quality sides um but you know turkey and switzerland are are quality sides themselves and i think they'll be tough to beat um and I think it's going to be up to certain players to step up for Italy. You know, we know the back line is usually a strength of Italy, but yeah, Chiellini and Bonucci might be a little past it. So um, we got to see how they hold up in a big tournament at this age, um, especially Chiellini. I mean, Chiellini's got to be and, 35, 36. Yeah. And also Bonucci, again, like Mancini, not the strongest defender. Yes. Really more a guy who like is rated for his ball playing skills. Mm-hmm. Not, not really a great one-on-one defender. So. Yeah, to, to me, in many ways, Mancini is like the heir to Bonucci for the national team in some ways, um, because yeah, he, they play the same style where I think Alessandro Bestoni is more of the um, more physical player. I think yeah. he can be the, the left-sided center back to Mancini's right, if that's the direction Roberto Mancini eventually goes when the Juve guys move out of the picture. Um, yeah. I think the midfield is Italy's strength, especially if Verratti is fit. I mean... If you could start Verratti, Jorginho, and Barella, I think to me, Barella has become Italy's best outfield player. Uh, Absolutely agreed. The only player you might be able to argue is better than him overall would be Gigi Donnarumma in goal. Um, <laughs> for all his character flaws and his agent's character flaws, he is a, a, a superb goalie. He's, um, he's excellent, yeah. Definitely and then, you know, yeah, I mean, Barella, I think this could be the, the, the tournament that really puts him on the European map because, you know, Inter hasn't progressed deeply into the Champions League with him the past couple of years. Um, this true. could be yeah. the chance he can really show what he's made of on the European That's stage. That's a very good point. Yeah, and I, I would tune in just for that because what I've seen Barella do in Inter games this year has really, like, sometimes had my draw on the floor. Like, yeah. he, he can do everything. He can, he can defend. He can, um, you know, he can protect the ball. He can shield it. You can like do a step over and, and like sell someone like you know on the you know, give them the slip and dribble butt right by them, you know, hit a long ball to the front line, uh, run up front, hit the shot, score the goal. You can do everything. Yeah, really everything. And four goals in twenty two matches for the national team as a as a midfielder, a box to box type midfielder is not a bad number. And, and speaking of goals, Sean, I'm just going to give you the goal totals from these players in their international time. This is what Italy's dealing with in terms of scoring goals. Andrea Bellotti, 33 appearances, 12 goals. Insigne, 40 mm. appearances, 7 goals. Berardi, uh, 4 in 10 matches is pretty good for a winger. Um, mm. But, you know, smaller sample size. Chiesa, 24 matches, only 1 goal. 
Immobile, 45 matches, 12 goals. So he's almost at like once every four starts at this point, once every four appearances, nearly. Um, yeah. Bernardeschi, 30 matches, six goals. And then Raspadori has yet to um, get a uh, cap with the senior squad. Uh, Bernardeschi is an interesting one. Um, I see jokes about Mancini all the time. Yeah, like what kind of pictures of Mancini does Bernardeschi have? Because he barely gets in the field for Juve. Uh, yeah. And he is a consistent member of this squad. Um, Matteo Politano, who had a very nice year for Napoli, got left off in favor of Bernardeschi. Um, yeah. I think Politano even scored twice in the friendly against San Marino the other day in his last chance to impress um, Mancini and still wasn't good enough. So No dice. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> well, Maybe Bernardeschi is just a great guy to have in terms of time to score together. You never know. He might yeah. be like a great morale guy. And he does why. seem to show up for Italy from what I've seen uh, more than he does yeah. on the – um Juve sides and I think it was funny because he actually said he made a comment after the match against San Marino because he he was involved in some of the goals you know with San Marino they scored they won seven nothing but you know that, that's a positive because Italy in the past would turn it off after two nothing those old Italy squads but yeah he made it a comment like he's able to express himself more with um the Azzurri under Mancini's you know yeah. style of play so it's interesting and you know that that's the thing right sometimes well often with these these summer tournaments it's just about who who can show up in those tournaments you know like yeah. you're talking about goal scorers um I'm, I'm sure that the strikers also have problems showing up in the big games as well so it doesn't this isn't really a defense of them but you know in terms of tournament like summer tournament football i'm okay if you win the win the the tournament with your like your midfield uh, yeah. you know shoulder the, the goal scoring burden you know it's whoever whoever can show up and actually turn up in the big games is gonna is really who you want on the pitch to score your goals like like france did that with zidane like yeah. in the 98 tournament. So it's, you know, they, they had Chapuisa up front or was it Guivache? Sorry, Guivache up front who was like, couldn't bag a goal to save his life. But you had Zidane behind him who was, you know, scoring all the important goals and, and they won the tournament. So yeah, it's, it's good enough. I mean, think about Italy 2006, their joint lead goal scorers. Uh, you had two goals from Luca Toni in the one match against, I believe it was Ukraine. And then Matarazzi had the two goals. Oh, Materazzi, there you go. Yeah, yeah Materazzi had oh, the two go. goals, uh, the two headers, uh, one in the final and one other big one, I think it was against the Czechs. And that was it. And Italy won as a team. And, you know, it just shows that you don't need a striker to score seven goals in a major tournament to win. It helps, yeah, yeah. of course, but you don't you don't need it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I know you don't follow the international football as much as I do, but what do you think for the Azzurri, you know, considering they're kind of rebuilding, bleeding in these new talents would constitute a success in this tournament? Yeah, I'm just going to dodge this question because I, I really <laughs> I have no idea, Steve. So you tell me. <laughs> I think a semifinal would be a big success. Obviously, you know, lifting the trophy or making the final is the biggest success. I think a semifinal would be a very strong tournament for Italy. I think it's minimum quarterfinal. Uh, and, and the reason is because five years ago, they made the quarterfinals with a much lesser squad. Um, the one okay. coached by Antonio Conte was, my goodness, if you talk about lack of talent outside of Daniele De Rossi, and the Juve defenders who were more in their prime at that time, they had the, the yeah. BBC in the back and De Rossi in the center midfield. I mean, they were starting Graziano Pele, uh, Emanuele Giacarini, yeah. uh, yeah, Stefano yeah, Stu Sturaro <laughs> was getting plenty of time. Eder was the other striker. So, Eder, I mean, yeah. I mean I no offense to these yeah. guys. They worked their, their tails off in that tournament, and Conte really had them motivated. Yeah. And that team took Germany to the to penalty kicks and lost yeah. in like the ninth round of the penalty kick. So with, with Zaza's great idea of penalty taking. Yeah. Oh God. Oh yeah. Zaza. That's right. Um, and, <laughs> but you know, they beat Belgium and they beat Spain in that tournament with a much lesser side. So that shows how upsets can happen because those sides had no, that Italy side had no business beating those better, better teams, much more talented yeah. teams. 
these are these are the intangibles that everyone talks about, right? Yeah. If you, if you, know, you can be a great like uh, squad full of individuals, but if if you don't have everyone buying into the strategy mm-hmm. on the pitch, you're you're going to lose out to a tournament like to a team that's re- really a team, like yeah. really a unit. You know? Yeah. And that's uh that's why the collective always outweighs the individuals in in this you know in in a team sport for the most part. And yes. uh, that Conte side did that. So, but I would say a minimum quarterfinal for Italy. I think in the group they're in, they should progress. Considering three teams could get through, uh, you win a knockout game or two, and you're into the semifinals. Then you know you really have a good tournament, and you're building toward World Cup 2022 with a fairly young squad. Most of these guys will be back for that tournament. Let, let me ask you: Is there any scenario where Italy do so badly that Mancini actually gets fired? Not, not that I'm wishing on him because I'm a, I'm actually a Montreal fan. Uh, strangely enough, for a guy who plays such defensive football, I actually do like his I like I like his whole career. So I wish him well. But is there any like any scenario where like Mancini gets canned after this moment? How how bad do you have to do? I think they would have to finish like out and not qualify for the group stage to even have that consi- I mean, out of the group stage to get to the knockout rounds to even be considered. Okay. Um, I know he recently extended his contract, I think even to Euro oh, 2024. Yeah, so did, yeah. the, the FA is behind him. Um, and yeah. I think for good reason, because I think he's got Italy playing some nice football for the most part. I know he still is, you know, maybe more defensive than other co- managers we see, but Italy plays a pretty attacking style of football. The thing that's so refreshing to me uh, as someone now who's been watching Italy for about 20 years in mm. the past, Italy, when they would have a friendly against San Marino, for example, who Italy just played or, you know, Gibraltar or like one of these like small countries or like Luxembourg in, in a, in a qualifier, they would, you know, get two goals and then turn it off play defensive yeah. and just milk it out. Now Mancini yeah. side will put up six, seven goals. I mean, they beat Armenia, not a footballing power, you know, Henrik Mkhitaryan's team. He's really the only star there. Nine yeah. one in the last qualifier, nine one. Yeah. Uh, okay. Italy, so, yeah, Italy they, doesn't, Italy doesn't really do that. Um, yeah. So I, I, so I like that. Yeah. They're a little they more cutthroat. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm just going off my, Memories of Mancini uh, back at Inter, which is yeah. way, way back ago. Yeah, so, yeah, no, he, he encourages the attacking play, which is nice to see because so often, and it, you know, that was the way Italy always won with the Catanaccio score a goal or two, get by, but that always left them vulnerable to that tying goal late in the match or something. You make one defensive yeah. mistake and you're vulnerable. Uh, or a couple he, of red cards against South Korea where you lose your head yeah, and then you yeah. have the tournament. Yeah, exactly. So um, he plays in a way that he encourages his team to score three, four goals if they can. Um, and they've also kept a fair number of clean sheets. I forget the exact number. I think he's managed like 30 some odd matches and Italy has like 18 clean sheets under him. It's something pretty good. Um, you know, so he, he does it well on both sides so far. Um, you know, so we've talked a, a bunch about Italy being a, you know, a steady eye heavy podcast here with, with Roma, but let's talk about the tournament odds. So coming into the tournament, this is as of June 1st, uh, from Betfair. I looked up these odds. I can't, I can't believe the odds I'm looking at here as, yeah. as an Englishman. Yes. So as an Englishman, Sean, England is joint favorites with France at five to one. Uh, England is coming that. off. They're coming off the World Cup semifinal a few years ago. Um, and they, they do have a pretty talented squad themselves. That's followed by Belgium at 11 to two, Spain at 13 to two, Germany, seven to one, Portugal, 15 to two. Italy's there in seventh favorite at nine to one. The Dutch are 12 to one, Denmark and Croatia, 25 to one at round out the top 10. How, how can England go into a tournament? bigger favorites than Germany that's just strange to me yeah I I never thought I'd live to see the day yeah and I think a lot of it has to do with uh Germany's form in the past few years I you know they they did crash out of the World Cup early when when England made the semis in 2018 and recently Germany I was actually looking uh at their recent form they lost a match to North Macedonia 
in a World Cup qualifier recently. Um, hey, North Macedonia. Yeah, so so maybe North Macedonia has more going for him than we than we would we expect. Think, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think Germany maybe not as much of a rebuild as Italy had to go through when they didn't qualify for 2018, or as much mm. as the Dutch had to go to when they didn't qualify for Euro 16 or World Cup 18. But I think they're starting to turn over the roster a bit, and that could be the reason they're slightly less favored than oh, usual. Yeah. But but I'm not looking at rationing. I'm just I'm I'm looking at purely from English psyche yeah. where we've been we've been really envious of how German teams show up in the summer mm-hmm. and they just they're like dead 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 set on on winning a tournament. Like oh, they, I mean they they're got, they're like a guaranteed semifinalist every tournament they're in almost. Yeah, yeah. They 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 just love tournament football. And that's the thing. Like I'm not trying to play the England team down, even though I don't I don't watch the Premier League nowadays. Um that's, that's not because I, I think it's not good not a good league, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think it's the best league in the world, but I just I just love to watch Serie A and I don't really have that much time for anything else. Um but like I saw the Champions League final. Uh they have Roos James in a in a Chelsea team, uh Mason Mount, uh Ben Chilwell in the Man City team they had uh John Stones. So you know they have Raheem Sterling. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely uh, you know high achievers in the England team mm-hmm. in club football. You know they they play in the best league in the world. They they reached the Champions League final. That they had you know um, nearly two English teams in the in the Europa League final as well. So you know that these players play to a high standard in the England team. But what we know they've been lacking throughout history is an England team that comes together in the summer. Yeah, um, like we just talked about unity. You know England have always struggled for this tournament mentality where everyone buys into it. Um, and that's why it's, it's just, I'm living in an alien world now where even the bookies fancy England as tournament favorites, joint favorites with France. I yeah. honestly never thought I'd live to see the day, but here we are. Yeah, it, it definitely is a, a different aspect to see Italy as a, uh, not Italy, I'm sorry, England as a favorite. They've always been kind of that second tier of international uh, yeah. competition in Europe, at least I feel like behind the Germany's and France's yeah, and Italy's absolutely. of the world and even Spain yeah. recently. But yeah, they have a nice talent pool. Uh, like you mentioned, they're playing in the biggest clubs in England, you know, which is, you know, the Premier League can be foreign heavy at times. And to see so many Englishmen for the top five or six sides is uh, it shows the talent that they have right now. Yeah. Uh, I always think back to like the around, I think it was the 2010 World Cup when, you know, you saw England's midfield and maybe it's because English players the get a little, generation. little hyped in, the, you know, the Premier League, but they had Gerard and Lampard and Beckham and, and those were just yeah, the midfielders, you know. But- but that, that brings home the point we're talking mm-hmm. about entirely. Like we had no idea how to combine that midfield to make it actually work. Yeah. Um, you know, once once we lost goals, who just said, "Look, you're playing Lampard ahead of me. You're pushing me out to the left wing. I'm out. Right. Yeah. I retire from international football." And and he was right because you can't like a flat four midfield with Lampard and Gerrard just doesn't work. And mm-hmm. Capello really messed that one up. Um, you know, you should have gone maybe four three three one or something. Just combine combine them in a different way. And that's what England have always struggled at. We've had great, great individual names, but just combining them has been a, a mess over the years. Yeah. And France, I mean, speaks for itself. We saw what they did in the 2018 World Cup. 18. They they yeah. have to be the most talented team on paper. You know, Mbappe is still like, I looked him up to, I think he's like 22 years old still after he burst on the scene <laughs> in the last World Cup. You know, Pogba, all these guys. They have Belgium. Um, their golden generation is starting to age, but they're still pretty, uh, you know, heavy favorites at third favorite in the tournament. Um, you know, a lot of those guys are getting older. This is probably their last crack at a title, I'd imagine. Um, you know, Spain, Germany, the classic powers, Portugal, 15 to two, I think get, get the respect because of Ronaldo and they're the defending champs. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, those top six teams, maybe even seven, when you pull in Italy, eight with the Netherlands, all have a shot, I think, to make a deep run. Um, you know, the Dutch don't have as many big names on paper as we're used to. Virgil van Dijk is out for this tournament. So 
I think that hurts them a bit. Um, but I think it should and be. Not always play stupid football when they go yeah. to tournament. They they, yeah. they believe they, they have their principles, and I admire it. But there's a reason why they 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 really haven't won anywhere near as many World Cups or Euros as, as they should have. Yeah, it's because they just they come up to play like uh, like Di Francesco turns up to play in the Champions League or Paolo Fonseca turns up mm-hmm. to play in the Europa League. You know, people just say, look, just a little bit more common sense. Right, yeah. play for the result. And the Dutch are like, no, we're too good for that. So. <laughs> um, we already mentioned the group of death, France, Germany, Hungary, Portugal. I don't think there's any arguing that that's the toughest group. But like we said, with the three, um, you know, teams possibly getting out, it's not, not such a big deal, the group of death anymore. But uh, any dark horses you have possibly from even the top 10 that might make a run that might not be in the top three or four favorites? Um, well, definitely Turkey, because we've yeah. been talking about them. Uh, you know, that they, they have really come along as a footballing nation. You know, I think uh, mm-hmm. it was what, in the 80s, they were getting absolutely smashed by England and, and another country, I can't remember who. And then around the millennium, they started to turn around um, on, on the club stage and now on the international stage. So they would be one of my dark horses, especially with their back line. I mean, they have a great, great defensive back line. So they can go far. Um, yeah. Who else? I no no one else really jumps out at me to be honest with you. Yeah, I think Turkey's a good shot as like a dark horse. Croatia, um, for a team that made a World Cup final just three years ago at twenty five to one is pretty low, but I think um, maybe they're not as deep as they were that tournament. I mean, Luka Modric is now thirty five years old, thirty six years old, so um, they're fighting father time a bit. Um, maybe Lewandowski's Poland. Yeah, and then uh, the other one that jumped out at me as a possible. Ukraine has a couple nice players and they're in a group. The toughest team in their group is the Netherlands. Maybe they have a chance to win that group with the Dutch. Um, yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. I know Ruslan Malinovsky had a, a huge year for Atalanta and they have, you know, a relatively unknown side because most of those players play in the Ukraine for either Dynamo Kiev or Shakhtar Donetsk. Maybe they could sneak up on some teams. Um, not too many others outside the favorites jump out of me as a team that could really make too deep of a run. Um but I, I would probably, yeah, I think Turkey's a good shout, especially if they get the right draw in the second round. We saw the talent that they have on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, any players you'll be keeping an eye on, Sean? Uh, Barella. Yeah. Just convinced me. Not, I mean, Barella for sure. I think it'll be, I'm interested to see how Harry Kane plays for England because he had a monster year for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, yeah. I'd be curious to and see if he, wants, he carries he it over. To- he wants to be a big name, like like Barella, like you said, and he wants to be noticed on the big stage. So this is yeah. kind of a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a big move away this summer from Spurs, from what I've been hearing. So to this Roma. could be his chance. Yeah. That would be <laughs> that'd be some signing. I wish we had that kind of money. Uh, <laughs> uh, any size historically outside of I know you're, you know, of Italian descent, English, Englishman by by uh, you know, citizenship. Is there I, any size? I wish I was of Italian descent. You give no, me too much credit. Man. Not at all. No. Okay. No. I thought there was a little bit in there. <laughs> no, I just, I just really, really love Italy. That's, that's okay. All. But, um, so, yeah. Out, outside of Italy or England, then we'll, we'll, keep, we'll exclude those two. Any side you have, a, you've had a soft spot for historically that's in this tournament? Um, you know, I, I just said that they played stupid football, but honestly, I, I do love the, the Dutch team uh, because <laughs> of the, their orange kits. I, I just love that look. So. I, um, yeah, I, I have to agree there. full well. That was my answer as well. I I, I love the Dutch's orange uh, kits. I've always been a fan of orange wearing teams. Um, yeah. And when Kevin Schroeman was on Roma, I took the opportunity to buy a Dutch jersey with his name on the back since he was a Roma player. Um, nice. It's one of my favorite ones. I don't wear it too often, but I have it. And 
if I had to pick another team outside of Italy that I would root for out of the favorites, I would probably root for England. Uh, I don't, I don't mind the English like I do the Germans or the French or any of these other big sides. I kind of have a soft spot for the the Brits. They're you know the, usually the mm-hmm. American ally in in things um, in the world. So you know <laughs> mother tongue and all those and, things. And we will be again because we just we just uh, exed ourselves from the European Union. So yeah, we're kind of reliant <laughs> on you. <laughs> um, but of the of the sides that aren't um, so heavily favored, I agree with you with the Dutch. So, Sean, if you had to choose between England or Italy, who are you rooting for? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll shock you with one thing that there's not a direct answer. But in the World Cup 2006 final, I rooted for France. Oh, um, wow. And uh, that was because I, I was with my French girlfriend at the time watching in Madrid. And I was, I was like really like behind Zidane and his, his, like his last ever appearance. Um, but in a, he, he went out in an even more epic way, which is he just walked right by the World Cup trophy. <laughs> and like, you know, it was like an iconic image of a guy who stood up for his family of his success. So he, he, he found a way to lose, but somehow win. Um, and I was happy with that. And Italy won. And of course, Francesco Totti finally set the record straight and, you know, became the most assisted, uh, gave the most assist in the tournament and he won the trophy for Italy. So I was happy with that. Um, that being said, to answer your question, I have to root for Italy because I, I don't watch the Premier League. Mm-hmm. I watch the AR. So I have more emotional ties to the ESP squad. I hope they do well. Yeah. Um, and then I guess we could go through some predictions. Well, you know, you know, all the money in the bank or guns to your head, who are you picking as a winner? Gun to my head, I honestly I'm gonna go with France. Yeah, I, it's hard to, to pick against France if you're a betting man. Uh, in this case, I don't want them to win necessarily, but I think they're the most likely winner. Um, yeah. they, have the, they have the best the best side. Um, I guess we kind of mentioned this with you know a dark horse, but maybe biggest surprise. I guess you would go with Turkey based on what you said before. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, I'll go with uh, I'll go with Ukraine just to go different direction. But yeah. I think Turkey's a good shout. Um, a side that might disappoint. Uh Let's see who are the favorites. Um, I I could see Spain disappointing again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see Spain, maybe even the Dutch. I don't know how good the Dutch actually are at this point, but their group is not the toughest. Um, mm-hmm. Golden Boot. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. I'll go with uh, Mbappe or Kane. Yeah, one of the two. Yeah, I would agree with those it's because you're going to be looking at a side that goes pretty deep into the tournament. So the, the striker yeah. has a chance to score quite a few goals. And I think it would probably be Mbappe or Kane as well. Um, you know, I think Ronaldo will be hungry, but I don't know if he gets as far this time to score as many goals. But I do think he breaks that record. He only needs one. Um, mm. Breakout player, someone that might really burst onto the scene this tournament. Uh, you know, I will, I will actually veer away from the attackers because I get too much attention as it is. I'm going to say, um, I don't know, maybe like Soyun Drew or so, someone like in defensive midfield, I think will will, will really, um, you know, turn it out. Uh, I don't know if Varela could be considered a breakout player, but if he, if he can, well, then I'd, I'd vote for him because I think he could really like control the, control the matches mm-hmm. from, from deep in midfield. Yeah, I agree. I think Barella would be a great shout. Um, if we can consider him a breakout player at this point, being that he's with Inter for two years, maybe in the international scene, it would be a breakout performance, but because I think he is uh, a very good midfielder. I, I think Malinovsky would be another guy maybe people might not know too well um, yeah. that could uh, shine for Ukraine. 
Um, you know, I had a lot to bring in these players that turned into very good players. I think who's the other one? Maranchuk from uh, Russia, I think yeah. was also, uh, maybe yeah. he gets a, a look, um, you know, these Atalanta guys, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how those Atalanta guys transition to international play. I'd be curious to see too. Um, yeah. I, I'd also mention someone like, uh, like someone who hasn't played a lot. Cause I my, honestly, my idea that fresh legs are going to, are going to surprise people. I think that I believe in that. So maybe someone like Emerson Palmieri or someone mm-hmm. who's like really unfancied, but hasn't played like played enough this season to stay sharp but has tons left in the tank to, to really take this summer um i think that they could like someone like that could really turn it up or maybe maybe even federico chiesa because he hasn't yeah. played that much um and he's you know as he said he's like a explosive player yep on the wing quickly he, he might prove to be a difference maker yeah i think he has a is a good shot i think he's a guy that if he's on his game he can be a big time difference maker um you know he i think it was in the the last um under 21 euros he had a couple strong matches um for that team that and that team was a big disappointment because they didn't get out of the group stage but um yeah i think he's behind Badella. he's a guy who could really explode onto the scene um it'll be interesting to see i'm you know i'm hoping for italy to to do well i'm you know i'm hoping for an exciting tournament but for me when italy gets further it's always more exciting because i those are the matches i make my business to tune into the others i'll watch if i'm around and there's a good game on tv um yeah. but if, you know if, if, if north macedonia are on uh, you know i'll, I'll switch it on but, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean pondev might surprise you he might score a goal against <laughs> one of the big teams you know they're in the, that group with the netherlands maybe pondev sinks the dutch or something and this shocks the world <laughs> yeah but the, the uefa will be upset about that because the uh, tv ratings go down so do you think the uh, england scotland match will be a hot affair over in the uk yeah, for sure. For sure. It always is. Yeah. Um, that War of the Roses. So, yeah. Well, not really War of the Roses. That's more Lancashire versus Yorkshire. But, yeah. Um, it, it is. Yeah. It's always heated. Yeah, so uh, we hope you guys, you know, tune in. We have a bunch of coverage on CDT coming up. Um, you know, Euro-related, we'll be covering the, the tournament, um, you know, a bit from a Roma perspective, but a bit from an Italy perspective and just the tournament overall. So keep an eye out for that. And then, uh, you know, keep tuned into Chiesa di Totti for all the, the transfer market coverage coming up. We'll have a transfer market pod probably in the next week or two. Uh, and Bren will also, also be coming on for that one. Uh, Bren loves to talk transfer, so we'll get to, to see him on the, the pod for the first time in a while. And um, Sean, anything you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, I'm rooting for North Macedonia. Uh, <laughs> apologize. I apologize. I mixed you up with Montenegro. Uh, I generally do. And, uh, you know, if you could really upset you for summer and, and go all the way and win a tournament and, and cause a TV blackout, um, I'll be right there with you supporting that chaos. So, yeah. North Macedonia against Finland in the final. Yes. <laughs> That'll go over well in uh, UEFA. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.